The talk you are about to hear is by Roshi Amala Wrightson, teacher at the Auckland Zen Center. Today is day three of our summer seven-day session. It's the 8th of January, 2024. And we're going to continue reading verses from Affirming Faith and Mind, along with some of the commentary from Master Sheng Yin from um, a little book called Faith in Mind. Just start off with um, reading the section that we'll, we'll aim to cover today. Abide not in duality, refrain from all pursuit of it. If there's a trace of right and wrong, true mind is lost, confused, distraught. From one mind comes duality, but cling not even to this one. When this one mind rests undisturbed, then nothing in the world offends. And when no thing can give offence, then all obstructions cease to be. If all thought objects disappear, the thinking subject drops away. For things are things because of mind, as mind is mind because of things. These two are merely relative, and both at source are emptiness. In emptiness these are not two, yet in each are contained all forms. Once coarse and fine are seen no more, then how can they be taking sides? So, abide not in duality, refrain from all pursuit of it. If there's a trace of right or wrong, true mind is lost, confused, distraught. Sometimes when people hear this this um, thing about right and wrong and, and that it causes confusion, um, they might feel concerned that um, not having some sense of right and wrong is also a cause for confusion and disorder. And I think it's important to understand what what is behind this and remember that this this affirming faith and mind are uh, uh, instructions for practice. So it doesn't mean obliterating all um, use of the concepts right and wrong. For instance, any country has to have a ju ju justice system and to have to arbitrate uh, what you could call right and wrong. Um, that's part of the, the ordering of a society. But this, this verse is not referring to that, really. It's, it's talking about our, our inner life and the way that we 
ascribe right and wrong to um, things that happen to us, um, both off the mat and on the mat. I've given a couple examples here of what I think um, Sang San is talking about. If something bad happens, bad in, in, in quotes, um, we think, oh, this shouldn't be happening to me. Or say, say we get sick, have a major illness. This shouldn't be happening to me at my age. Or this shouldn't happen, be happening to me given how, healthy I live, how healthily I live. Or it might be, it might be in, our, in our formal practice, when our mind becomes, say, very, very um, distracted and um, a mess, we might say, and we think to ourselves, oh, I've been practicing for 15 years. At my stage of practice, this shouldn't happen. This is wrong. It's not right. And of course, this kind of... Um, Judgment it just makes it worse. It, it, we, it's hard enough dealing with a chaotic mind, but then to put this kind of judgment in there on top. And of course, if we feel it's somehow, we must be wrong if it's happening to us often, then um, the, the, the suffering is compounded. So much peace of mind can come with accepting what we have to deal with, accepting our troubles, our difficulties. In some ways, things, the, the trouble is no longer a trouble if we, if we fully accept it. We just do what we can to work with it. I'm designating something to be to wrong often has a physical component in us that we 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 tense we tense up actually physically tense up but also mentally one of the favorite phrases of of our teacher Roshi Bowden is uh, make peace with it. Make peace with it. We'll also dip into a little bit of the some bits of the commentary by Master Xing Yin. And this is commenting again on these two verses. Abide not in duality, refrain from all pursuit of it. If there's a trace of right and wrong, true mind is lost, confused, distraught. 
Duality refers to the discriminating mind. It includes any doubts about the correctness of your method or whether your decision to attend this retreat was a right or a wrong one. I'm sure everybody has, has had, at times felt, oh, why did, I, why did I decide to come to this session? What a mistake. But most, most people sit through that and it, it passes. He continues, if you lack faith, you will doubt the method you are using. On the other hand, if your confidence is too strong, then you will be expecting something out of the practice. Both extremes are not beneficial. We, there are problems that come with um, not being confident, lacking faith, um, but there also are problems which come with being overconfident. Often the, the overconfident person doesn't listen very closely to instructions he or she is given. They think they know what to do already. To come to a retreat merely out of curiosity shows a lack of faith in yourself and in your, the practice. It would be impossible for you to get good results. Um, what I think he means here, and he says merely out of curiosity, is coming um, without a, a goal for oneself in terms of the practice. This is the, this is the paradox. We have to get rid of our, our, our grasping mind, but our grasping mind is, is uh, what brings us Wanting, wanting to get good results is the way that, that Shang Yang puts it. But it's not uncommon for people to, to say they're coming merely out of curiosity and then over time if they come when, with um, the f a level of sin sincerity then they may find that they discover their, their goal or their aim in, or what they want to get out of the practice. So sometimes saying that curiosity is a way of sort of just dipping the toe in to test the waters. So what he's saying here is we do have to get in touch with our motivation if, if we're going to get good results, if we're going to endure all the ups and downs that uh, Sashin throws at us. He, he's still talking about this person who's come immediately out of curiosity. He says, from the very beginning you are denying yourself the possibility of doing well on retreat. At the same time you may harbor certain resentments. You may get annoyed with the people around you or even at your own body when your legs cause you pain. You may be critical of the food or the style of the retreat. Um, our criticisms are, or are finding fault, which is part of this, uh, the mind of right and wrong, is sometimes a way of, of um, holding back from engaging fully, of, of st staying outside in, in a, an observer role rather than, than a participant. 
But getting annoyed with people also is just normal part of Sishin. And we don't have to give life to that. We can just experience it and move on. There's, there's bound to be different kinds of fiction if we're all uh, packed together and, and doing this works elbow to elbow. He continues, having too much faith in yourself is likewise a problem. Someone who, has, who was extremely confident came to one retreat. He was highly intelligent and a top student. He thought, if a person like me cannot get enlightened, then who can? After one day of practice, his back ached, his legs hurt, and he began to question if this was the way to get enlightened. One evening in the Chan Hall, he heard me say, if you can do it, sit through the night. He concluded that in order to get enlightened, he should forego sleep. By midnight, his eyes were heavy, but he forced himself to continue sitting. After three days of this, he was totally exhausted. And he said to me, now I have some idea of this enlightenment you are talking about. Basically, you have to go without sleep. <laughs> this is a misapprehension. Um, for one thing here, he, it seems to be like a kind of quid pro quo. If I stay up late, then I'll get enlightened. Just have to put in my hours. Um, but I guess the sheen kind of um, does can grind us down with with the pain and the and the hurt. And um, we can experience it as humiliating. And with the right attitude, that sense of, of humiliation can be a positive thing. If it's not um, kind of um, wallowed in. It's not, um, getting enlightenment is not about um, going without sleep, but um, going without sleep is not something that um, shouldn't be ha happen at times either. We, we must um, allow ourselves to be led by the practice, what, what the practice needs at any given moment. And sometimes that means going without sleep, but it's not going without sleep in order to get something. Shenyin then says, practice is like cooking rice. If you use a gentle flame, the rice will be perfect and easy to digest, whereas with a high flame, it will burn before it is done. One should practice with a very relaxed attitude. One should practice with a very re relaxed attitude. I don't think um, in... Zen texts, Japanese Zen texts, there's much talk of practicing with a relaxed attitude, at least, or at least not perhaps in our lineage. Um, but if we don't find 
are a relaxed attitude, then we can burn out. And it's not so uncommon in our tradition, and perhaps it's a, it's a blind spot we have, uh, for people sometimes to get very tight, um, uh, overwrought at times in Sishin, and or, or a, a feeling very dry, that practice can feel very dry and barren. And this relaxed attitude that Master Sheng Yun is talking about isn't lax, a lax attitude, too loose, but um, not getting too hit up about results. Doing the practice for its own sake. Finding our way to a balanced effort, not too tight, not too loose either. But it, it, it is a practice we work with in the body and the mind. If we notice that we are getting tight, um, overwrought, to take a few minutes to just check in the body where, where there might be tension and to release that tension as much as possible. And then another thing can, that can be really helpful is um, doing loving-kindness practice. Um, because we have, can have these fairly hateful self-talk go, going on in the mind, and we need to address that as that habit. And uh, loving kindness is a wonderful way to do that because it involves this dual sending of love and compassion uh, to beings and to ourselves. We're never left out of the equation, and this can be really helpful if you if you do have. Uh, a very uh, persistent and loud and conniving inner critic to work with. Master Shingen can use the, the um, analogy of cooking rice and using a gentle flame. Um, another one is if, you, if you're looking after a baby um, you hold the baby too tightly, then you s smother it, injure it. Um, if you hold it, hold the baby too loosely, you might drop it. But to find um, a uh, middle way, which um, a relaxed attitude means finding a way of being intimate with the practice, holding that baby just right, cooking the rice just right. Goes on talking about abiding in, in duality. And remember he was saying that what, he, what the, the Master Sang San means by duality is is our habit of discrimination. If you do not abide in duality, neither having too much nor too little confidence, then what should you do? You have not come here to get enlightened, but to practice. It is not important whether you have a good grasp of the matter and can enter the practice deeply or not. Just do not have any doubts about the method or whether you have the right stuff to practice. 
Do not underestimate yourself. If others can practice, then at least you can try. One, one way of, uh, of thinking about this is, is, or is to remind oneself that um, everyone is different. Everyone has different karma. We don't know what our own karma is and we don't know how things will unfold for, for other people either. So comparing oneself to others or feeling that we're really um, slow learners The important thing is just to practice. And to, to generate as much faith as we can in the practice itself. Trust the practice. Trust the unfolding of, of things as they need to unfold given the causes and conditions that have brought them into being. If others can practice, at least we can try. This is really, um, if you do feel inept, you can, you can uh, uh, at least rejoice in having uh, the mind of a beginner. Each time we come back to the, to the, to the con or the breath, that's I'm beginning again. Once a student did well on her first retreat and came back for a second time. At first everything went fine, but then the pro a problem arose. While sitting it occurred to her that counting the breath was really boring. If she spent her time reciting the name of the Buddha, she thought, then at least she would be accumulating merit. But what was the use of counting from one to ten? Towards evening, she said to me, Shifu, I don't want to stay on this retreat. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Even a kid in kindergarten can do that. Why should I waste my time here? Um, actually, I, I would question her about even the, in the kid in kindergarten could they do that completely wholeheartedly and in a focused way without being distracted? There's a story that um, Roshi Kepler used to tell of um, a, an early workshop that they the, gave at the centre where a mathematician came and he was um, highly qualified, had gone to somewhere like MIT or some other prestigious um, university. And at the end of the workshop he said, I've got, a, I've got a PhD from MIT and I've discovered I can't count past two. <laughs> Continues. When your mind strays from the method, problems will appear. In fact, the method is inherently meaningless. It is irrelevant to discuss whether it brings merit or not. The purpose of a method is to train your mind. You can raise the same objection about prostrating to Buddha or morning and evening chanting. Why should practice take these forms? Why indeed? 
there's a koan, why, should we, um, why do you put on, on your seven-piece robe at the sound of the bell? In other words, why, why do we come to chanting? Why do we prostrate? People often wonder if Chan is a method of sudden enlightenment which does not depend on meditation, then why do we practice meditation and go on seven-day retreats? If someone objects that these things are unrelated to Chan, they say that if you want to study Chan... Oh no, we won't go that, get that route. That, I don't want to get into that. I'll just go forward a little bit here. So just, just um, finishing up with these why questions, um, really, why questions take us away from this, this, what's in front of us? Um, but they can be motivators in getting us going on looking not so much into why, but into what. What is right in front of us? Meditation should just be a part of ordinary life. If you have other motivations, it will lead to problems. When you approach the practice with any expectations, you will not be able to sit well. Not only should you not have any expectations of getting enlightened or becoming a Chan master, but you should not even expect to be free from your pain. Do not hope that your legs or back will stop hurting. Do not try to overcome the pain as if you had to burst through a barrier. Simply accept the pain. You may not feel very happy about it, but at least do not resent it. If you cannot accept it, then ignore it and turn your mind to the method. When the pain becomes too great to ignore, place your attention on the pain itself. Let it ache away. If you can take this attitude, eventually it will go away. When you really get into the practice, all bodily sensation will disappear. So he's offering us several, several methods of uh, working with the pain. Um, and the first one he gives is just simply to accept it. And what that involves, surprise, surprise, is relaxing around the pain. It makes, it makes a huge difference. Ten, tensing up around the pain, which is our, our habit, actually uh, intensifies the pain often. So that's, that's just one, one thing there we can do, just to, to relax around the, the pain, soften around the pain. Release anything that is, that is stuck in that area, wherever it is. Another way of, of accepting the pain is to um, bring your attention to it, which he, he mentions further down. Um, if the pain becomes too great to ignore, place your attention on the pain itself. You can actually, if you're doing the a breath practice, you actually breathe through the, the, this painful area. And what that means is you're, you're, you're um, 
giving a physical expression to your leaning into the pain, embracing it rather than, than um, trying to push it away. He says, let, let it ache away. If you take, can take this attitude, eventually it will go away. You really, if you, when you really get into the practice, the bodily sensation will disappear. Let it ache away. In other words, put your faith in the inherent impermanence of all things. That eventually the, the pain will um, either go away or get more intense or get less intense. That's a, that's a given. But above all, to soften and relax. Welcome the pain. Actually, pain can be a great aid to concentration. We can be so highly motivated to um, concentrate when we're in a lot of pain. People sometimes even say they miss it if they've <coughs> got so limber that they don't have so much pain and they find that the practice is not as intense as it once was. But that's likely to change too. There are no, there are no guarantees when it comes to the body-mind. The important thing is not to have any resentment against your suffering or any expectations of happiness. As soon as ideas such as suffering versus happiness arise, your mind will already be straying from the method, caught up in duality. Caught up in this and that. This is good, this is bad. You are all aware that this center is not an ideal environment for practice. And this was their, their city center that they were doing this session at. He says, the neighbors hammer against the walls. Outside there is a continual stream of traffic and airplanes passing overhead. Yet even in the midst of this noisy and crowded world, we are given a small area to practice. So we should let our mind be dis not let our mind be distracted by what is going on outside or by what comes in contact with our senses. We are here uh, in a state of relative luxury compared with the the Chan Center. We just have our chickens and tuis and the occasional plane going overhead, but really, such ideal circumstances. We really can't complain. On retreat, you are living with many people which may create an uncomfortable environment. You don't feel free or find it as convenient as at home. On the other hand, the presence of others will encourage, almost force you to practice. Even if you're not practicing energetically, at least you will make an effort to look to be practicing. 
um, and pretend, you know, pretending to practice strongly, uh, maybe going and making an appearance at Yaza, but then scuttling off to bed. Um, pretending can turn into something real. It can be an expression of our aspiration. When people sit together, they can be of great benefit to each other. Whether you practice well or not, treasure this rare opportunity and do your best. We encourage each other to sit strongly. We, we encourage others and others encourage us. It's a, it's a mutual process. We create, with our efforts, we create a kind of intangible momentum which we, we can dip into when maybe our, our energy is flagging. So he's, he's right in uh, encouraging us to treasure this rare opportunity. And then to do our best, that's really all we can do, is to summon ourselves as much as we can and pour that, all of that into the, bre- into the breath or the koan, the shikantaza. Next couple of verses. From one mind comes duality, but cling not even to this one. When this one mind rests undisturbed, then nothing in the world offends. Nothing in the world offends. That's, um, could say, a kind of um, definition of awakened person. Nothing offends, nothing perturbs. Master Shin Yen says, in yesterday's talk I cautioned against abiding in duality. Although we should not abide in duality, we must still hold on to the method. Method is that which helps us to unify our mind, to replace the constant stream of scattered thoughts. After the mind is concentrated by the method, we usually reach a point where the method itself disappears and the mind is one. Today, someone said during interview, I have been practicing for quite a few years, but I have never had the experience of forgetting my body or my method disappearing. I said, you should not be too anxious about it. Just proceed naturally. Very helpful encouragement. Don't be too anxious about it. Just proceed, proceed naturally. To understand this process is as... Um, Cultivation, you know, and gardeners, they, they 
cooperate with nature. They enhance or, or um, improve on nature. But without nature, nothing happens. So to put our faith in this, in this awakening as being um, a process of um, preparing the ground, watering the, the ground, and then leaving the rest up to nature. He, he says, the state of one mind has to come about naturally. Naturally, the method will leave you behind. It's not for you to think of leaving the method behind. In other, it's, in other words, it drops away. The state of one mind is not easy to attain, but today I will go one step further and say that even the one mind has to be transcended and left behind. In the Avatamska Sutra, there are the following two lines. With no exception, everything comes from the Dharma realm. With no exception, everything will return to the Dharma realm. Everything is generated by the one and will eventually return to the one. This concept can be found in both Oriental and Western philosophy, but in Buddha Dharma, even this state is not good enough. A disciple of Zhao Zhou once asked his master, if the myriad dharmas return to the one, to what does the one return? Zhao Zhou said, in Qing Zhao, I made a robe. I had a robe made weighing seven pounds. In Qing Zhao, I had a robe made weighing seven pounds. What's that got to do with the one? To be attached to the one can either take the form of pure materialism or monotheism. But in the course of practice, it is necessary to first get to the one. It is only then that you realize that even this one is not an ultimate. It is still on a worldly level. Only when you can transcend this unified state will you reach genuine Buddha Dharma. In this, this state of, of oneness, there is still um, someone who is experiencing one, oneness. And it can be very, very alluring. Master Shingyan continues, you begin by concentrating the scattered mind. To say that the mind is concentrated does not mean that it is in a unified state because there is still a distinction between subject and object, between you and the method. But when the method drops away, your mind will be very clear without any thoughts, and you are left only with a sense of your own existence. This is the state of one mind, also called samadhi. However, this is only an elementary level of samadhi, and if you continue on the same course, you can get into ever-deepening samadhi states. However, Chan practitioners do not dwell in samadhi, but attempt to drop even that state of mind. You think of the, the 
teaching from the Diamond Sutra arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. This is the, the core of, of Zen and Chan, this non-abiding. Today, a student mentioned that when he sits, he very often enters a very comfortable, enjoyable state. This type of sensation is really an expression of desire. As long as a person is attached to a desire for bodily or, mentally, or mental pleasure of any kind, there is no help, hope of entering into one mind. This is because your mind is divided into two or even three, a sense of yourself, of your body, and of the pleasure. If a pleasurable sensation arises while sitting, you should remain aloof from it. Let this yet this experience is not com completely useless because it at least motivates you to continue practicing and to attend retreats. Indeed, an enjoyable meditation experience can exceed the pleasure that derives from food or sex. But as soon as you reach the stage, leave it behind. This is a place where, where people have a tendency to get very stuck, um, sometimes referred to as um, uh, devil's cave, because of its, it's so alluring. Another term for one mind is great self, because although the mind is enormously expanded, there is still a sense of self-centeredness or I. So long as you feel that you are abiding in a state of perfection or think yourself as a perfect master, this is at best the great self, in other words, not the non-self. Thus, there are two meanings of one referred to in this line but cling not even to this one. The first is samadhi, and the second is the great self. These are the highest states that can be attained from the practice of worldly dharma. But from the point of view of Chan, even though a person may reach samadhi or the great self, he will still be in samsara, the cycle of birth and death. Because there's still a sense of self there. The liberation that he feels is only transitory. It is not ultimate liberation. It can be very helpful, though, to have even this limited experience because um, it, gives a, it strengthens our faith. A person in this state is also still subject to problems, but when he lose, loses even that one mind, nothing can cause him any trouble. So um, this is the second line here in the, the chant. When the, this one mind rests undisturbed, then nothing in the world offends. Nothing is reacted against. All is as it is.
One thing should be clarified here. In the state of one mind, there are no vexations. Trouble can only develop in a state of two or three. As long as you stay in a state of one mind, nothing can bother, tempt, or excite you. The problem with one mind is that it cannot last forever. Inevitably, a thought will arise, and it will evolve into two, three, and many. The state of one can only be considered in relation to two. A true, a true totality would not even be considered one. It can simply be called nothing. It is only when a distinction is made that the one can exist at all, and in that case it will lead to two. You can only feel lonely when you are aware of the possible presence of another person. Incomplete to totality, there is no sense of loneliness. As soon as you label something as one, then that's no longer one anymore. It's, it's a state plus a designation. No mind, or chan, is the state of non-arising and non-perishing. Not a single thought will arise, and even that unmoving mind fundamentally does not exist. There is nothing that can give you trouble, and nothing that you can give trouble to. Both our body and mind need food to survive. There are two types of food for the body, nutrition and contact. Contact food includes the sensation of touching another person and the feeling of changing into clean clothes after a shower. So these, these two things that we need to survive and so they have particularly uh, strong attraction towards and tendency to come, become attached to, of course. And then there's a third kind of food for the mind called consciousness food. In other words, ideas and opinions and, and feelings and so forth. If you can leave the first two kinds of food, you will be outside of the desire realm. That's one of the realms of unenlightened existence beyond the, the regular senses. But beyond the desire realm, there are the form realm and the formless realm. To go beyond them, you have to free yourself from the food of consciousness. In the state of one mind, where only consciousness exists, you may have transcended the desire realm, but you are still in samsara. Only when you are free from all three types of food, in other words, attachment to all three types of food, will you enter no mind and be outside samsaric wealth, so samsaric realms. So even in these states of oneness, blissful states of oneness, there's still a self there that, that needs the mind food. Um, is existing on, attached to experience, I'd say. Well, our time is up. Um, we'll stop here and recite the four vows. The teaching you have received is offered freely 
If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.